Let me pray for us one more time. Father, I ask that for the students in particular and all of us, that we would not be afraid of opposition, that it would not cause anxiety in our hearts and that it would not cause disunity in our ranks, but that there would be a boldness that flows from the promise, my God will supply every need that you have in Christ Jesus according to his riches in glory. I pray that we wouldn't waste our lives frittering them away with video games or endless TV watching. May the vapor's breath that you've given us to live be lived with all our might until you come or until you call. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and Timothy, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. It's right for me to think this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And my prayer for you is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may prove what is excellent and so be full of the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. For it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord, are more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I am sure that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my salvation, just as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body whether I live or whether I die. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But which I shall choose, I cannot tell. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
So I am sure that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. of Christ. Don't be afraid. With one mind, with one spirit, preaching the gospel, unafraid, this will be a sign to them of your salvation, their destruction, and that from God because it has been granted to you not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now see that I still have. So this is the first in a series of four messages on Philippians, and I, Glenn, am only doing the first one. So you guys who are working on the next three, don't panic. This is mine, chapter 1. So what I'd like to do first is tell you my main point, my only point, and, and then go to the text and see where it comes from. So here's the point. I'll probably say this sentence four or five times. God graciously gives His people suffering and faith so that they might enjoy magnifying Christ to their adversaries through fearlessness of faith and humble love. Let me say it again. It's a long sentence. God graciously gives His people suffering and faith so that they might enjoy magnifying Christ to their adversaries through the fearlessness of faith and humble love to each other. That's the point of the message. Here are four reasons why I've chosen to focus on this. Number one, because perhaps it's the most startling point in the paragraph, verses 27 to 30, which is the one we're going to focus on, the one we read earlier verses 27 to 30. I do hope you'll open your Bibles and turn to it. We'll be looking at it in detail in a moment. So I, my first reason for focusing on this is that I think what I've just said is, is perhaps the most startling teaching in this paragraph, and it's very close to the main point of the whole book. Second reason, because joyful suffering, joyful suffering is more central to magnifying Christ in the world in the New Testament than we often think it is, especially those of us who live in the prosperous West. Third, because suffering in the global church is more in our face today than it ever has been in the history of the world because of social media. 
For example, the 21 martyrs in Libya or the 147 students last week in Kenya, 100 years ago, you would have never heard of these things, and they were happening. More in our face than ever is the suffering of God's people. And the fourth reason for this point is that the lightning speed of the cultural decadence of America means that most of you will be living and serving Christ in the presence of increasing hostility to your faith. So those are my four reasons for why this point is my point. Number one, most startling in the text. Number two, it's more central to magnifying Christ. Suffering is than you have ever perhaps thought. Suffering is in our face in the global church, and it's going to be in your life more than it was in mine. Mine, perhaps. So let me say it again. The point of this message is God graciously gives his people suffering and faith so that we might enjoy magnifying Christ to our adversaries through fearless faith and humble love. Paul is writing from prison. And that makes him keenly aware of the place of suffering in magnifying Christ. Go back to verse 12. You can smell the point already. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's suffering is advancing faith in the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what he says. The whole imperial guard knows he's in jail for Jesus, and there are converts happening in Caesar's household. We know that because chapter 4, verse 22 says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Fearful brothers are being made bold, right, by the imprisonment, by the suffering. They're being made bold to fearlessly speak the gospel. And in this, Paul is rejoicing. So, he's in prison and that suffering, the suffering is unleashing the magnifying of Christ in the household of Caesar and through the bold preaching, and Paul is thrilled. And we know that because of verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So that's almost the whole point of the message, but not quite. That's just context. So you can smell it. You can smell it. You smell it all over this book. You, you can smell it all over the Bible, especially the New Testament, if you have a nose for suffering and the glory of Christ. So suffering is leading people to preach Christ with boldness, fearlessness. Paul, the catalytic sufferer, is thrilled with this. This is, yes, yes, in this I 
Rejoice. That's why I'm on the planet. So, we're not surprised then in verses 19 and 20 that when he gives the reason for why he says at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, it goes like this. Because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation, not deliverance from prison. And we know that because the next verse speaks as though he might not get out of prison. And the salvation remains true whether he does or whether he doesn't. So keep reading, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I may not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ would be magnified in my body, whether I live or whether I die, that's what I'm sure of. Live or die, I magnify Jesus because the Holy Spirit and your prayers won't let me dishonor Christ in my dying. That's what he's so excited about, so happy about. I am sure, yes, in this I rejoice, and I will rejoice, because live or die, I am going to magnify Christ, and nothing makes me happier than to make Christ look magnificent. Yes, and I will rejoice. Or maybe he won't die. What then? In fact, he's quite sure he won't die. He's going to get out of prison, and instead of experiencing his joy in magnifying Christ by death, he will experience joy in helping them magnify Christ in his life. So, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy of faith. What's the root and focus of that joy in verse 25? It's called joy of faith. Verse 26 gives the answer. So that in me you may have ample cause to Glory, boast, exult in Christ Jesus. So, if I can't die and make much of Christ in my body by the way I die, I'm going to live and make much of Christ in stoking your faith so that you exult in me in Christ. So, live or die, I will be magnifying Christ. I will be making him look great, either through my death or through your faith. That's why I'm on the planet. That's what I live for. So, if he doesn't get the joy of magnifying Christ in his death, he will get the joy of helping them magnify Christ by his life, which brings us to our text. And the point is already made, almost. Not quite. There's a logic in the paragraph 27 to 30, which we need to see and is seldom dwelt upon. So, here we go. State the point again. God graciously gives suffering and faith to His people so that they might enjoy making much of Christ to their adversaries through fearless faith and humble love. 
Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is a chapel, and you're all students, and all of you sooner or later are going to know Greek, so we need, to, we need to know it for this reason, because there is one word in Greek behind only let your manner of life. That's one word in Greek. Polituomai. Here, politics, polis, city, state, polituomai. It means live as a citizen, live as a good citizen, fulfill, carry out your civic duty. So let your manner of life means live as a citizen, carry out your civic duty. And the question is, civic duty of Philippi or heaven? Bruce Winter argues Philippi. Be a good citizen in Philippi to make much of Christ. Or is the citizenship in Paul's view in heaven, not in Philippi, the Roman city-state? Chapter 3, verse 20 says, our citizenship, related word, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think at the front of Paul's mind is citizenship in heaven, because he says that. So he's saying, live as good citizens of heaven. Your names, along with Euodian Syntyche, and Clement are written in the registry of the citizen book of heaven. Chapter 4, verse 3. So live like that. However, both from Paul and from Jesus, we know that part of our responsibility as citizens of heaven is to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So, maybe the best way to translate it would be carry out your heavenly civic duty in the civic structures of the earth. Show that your supreme allegiance is to heaven as you navigate your civic responsibilities in America. How do you do that? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life, your heavenly citizenship, let your heavenly citizenship on, on earth be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the way you do it is by walking worthily, living worthily, being a citizen worthily of the gospel of Christ, which does not mean be worth Christ, <laughs> be deserving of Christ. Christ is of infinite worth. Live like he is. That's the way you walk worthily of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is of infinite value. Live to show it. You're a, you're a citizen of heaven, which is of infinite preciousness. Live to show it here. 
So to walk worthily of the gospel of Christ is to live in such a way that you show the gospel's infinite worth. Worthily is the worth of the gospel. Why does the gospel have infinite worth? Because it's the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4, it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is the news, the gospel is the news of what Christ did so that we could have Christ. Chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I counted as I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of the surpassing knowledge of Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It is idolatry to say the gospel is of infinite value for any reason less than by it we gain Christ. So, to fulfill your heavenly civic duty on the planet is to show the infinite value of the gospel because the gospel gets you Christ. And everything you do, every decision you make, you calculate, will it make him look great on the planet? That's what it means to be a citizen, a good one, of heaven. Our king is not Caesar, and our treasure is not the world. Live like that. changes everything. So, the mark of the citizen of heaven is that he lives in the world to show that Christ and not the world is his supreme treasure, has supreme worth. Christ is the supreme king, not Caesar. Christ is the supreme treasure, not the world. Or to use the word of verse 20, which is in my main point sentence, a good citizen of heaven on the earth rejoices to magnify Christ. Verse 19 and 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will never ever be ashamed, but that always Christ will be magnified, made much of, shown to be glorious in my life, whether I live or whether I die. That's what it means to walk worthily of the gospel, which gets us Christ. Now he gets specific in verse 27. What makes him look like that? What makes him look like that? And the answer is being fearless before adversaries, 
and being one-souled with each other, rooted in the Holy Spirit. I, I think the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit, even though the ESV doesn't. In one Spirit, we are one soul. So by the Spirit, our souls are linked. We'll come back to that. Let's read verses 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the, of, of the gospel of Christ so that, this is what I want to see when I come or hear about when I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one soul striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything anything, death, shame, loss of job, nothing. You cannot rule me by fear. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, the mention of fear here, not frightened in anything, means that the opposition was dangerous, right? We no point of bringing up fear. If something they weren't threatening or doing would ordinarily cause fear. So there's a threat of harm or real harm. I don't know how far it's gone there in Philippi. And Paul calls for fearlessness in the face of the threat of trouble, pain, death, whatever. Don't be afraid in anything. And he calls them to the bonding of souls by the Spirit in the struggle to bring faith to the people of Philippi, the faith of the gospel. A word about the bonding of the souls here, one soul. We know from just a few verses later, chapter 2, that as he unpacks that kind of unity, it's the kind of unity produced by being like Jesus who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. So it's the unity of not counting myself more significant than you. It's the unity of not taking thought for my interests only, but also for your interests. To be one soul as you stand beside another Christian is not to have the same tastes, even be totally agreed in all of your doctrine, is to look at them and say, I'll die for you. My, your interests are my interests. I'm going to be to you like Christ was to me when he came from heaven. That's the way you link arms and walk into the jaws of the lion who prowls around trying to destroy, destroy faith. So there's this magnificent hum, humility-rooted unity, and there's this glorious fearlessness. And Paul says, that is a clear sign. Verse 28 at the end. This is a clear sign. Spirit wrought, humble, loving, other-interested, self-sacrificing love and unity and fearlessness before opposition is a sign in the world, a big 
placard has just gone up in Philippi. Bright, shining sign to the adversaries or anybody who would look at it. It's very real. Whether people see it or not, it's real. There are millions of such signs in the world today. Do you have eyes? Do you have eyes? That's another thing the social media are for in God's providence. To see the signs that are all around us. Chapter 2, verse 15. You shine like lights in a dark world. I'd love to unpack the connection between those two texts, as well as chapter 4, verse 4, where you're not anxious for anything as you let your gentleness be known to the world. This is all over the place in Philippians and in the New Testament, but we'll, we'll just stay here. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, they are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. There is a perishing. This is a sign of what? This is a sign of what? You're saved, they're not. Right? Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation. Your humble love of one another and your fearless stand for the gospel in the presence of opposition is a real sign that you are saved. And those who oppose people who are saved are lost. They are going to destruction. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They're enemies of the cross. You know where I'm talking. Chapter 4, end of chapter 3. Their end is destruction. They need a sign to that. They need a sign. They need to see that written on a big sign. You're it. They're damned. The aroma from death to death and from life to life. Then Paul says, that sign is from God. And that from God, and that from God, that sign from God. That humble, loving unity among the brotherhood, and that fearlessness before adversaries, God did that. God did that. God lifted the banner for the world in you. God lifted the banner. That's God's sign. That sign is from God. How did he make it? How did he build it? Verse 29. Four. It's... This sign of fearlessness and humble, loving unity is built by God because it has been granted to you, namely by God, who's building the sign, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer. Why is it a sign from God? Because he gave you two gifts, suffering and faith. 
Another little Greek excursion here. The word give is not didomy. You can didomy a punch in the nose. <laughs> you can give somebody a punch in the nose. You cannot charizomai a person a punch in the nose. This is love. This is all grace, all good, all kindness, all undeserving, all blessing. God graciously gives you the precious gift of suffering. Surely Paul wants us to feel the tension in that. He graciously mercifully, lovingly gives this wonderful gift, not only of faith, the accent falls on suffering, free gift. Here it is. I love you. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ for the glory of Christ, for magnifying Christ, that you should not only believe, but also suffer. That's a gift. So two gifts. Now think with me. A little thinking cap here. How do those two gifts produce the sign of fearlessness in particular? In order to create a sign, a big, bright, unmistakable, irrefutable sign of fearlessness, what do you need? You need something to be afraid of and you need faith so that you won't be afraid of it. it doesn't make any sense any otherwise. <laughs> to say, you got fearlessness, he's like, anything to be afraid of? No. That's ridiculous. To say, I want to erect a sign of fearlessness means I'm putting enemies in your face. And I'm giving you faith. The two gifts of verse 29 create the sign of verse 27 and 28. That's what the ground clause is for. God wants this. God designed America as it is conflicted today. He's got a thousand reasons for doing it. We might know now three. <laughs> and that's all you need to know in order to walk worthily of the gospel that is to be unified in love and to be fearless. Okay, let's sum it up by thinking backwards. First, there's a sovereign God, right? If we're going to build like this, build the argument like this. Right at the bottom here, there's a God who gives what he pleases. Down there's God, sovereign, and he's gracious because that's what the verb says. Charisma, I'm graciously giving. So we got a oh, sovereign grace, boom, right there in the text. And he's giving, he's giving faith and suffering, verse 29. This suffering comes in the form of hostility from opponents. So God's giving that. So is the devil. The devil roars around like a lion trying to consume and gobble up your faith, but he's on a leash. 
Everything from Satan is from God as well in a different motive and design. What's the motive here? The motive here is I'm going to produce a sign with the suffering and the faith as they collide when the the threat of suffering collides with the gift of faith, what's born? Fearlessness. The sign is lifted up, and they can see it. And persevering love and unity. Few things start to tear a church or a family, a marriage apart, like suffering. That's why the divorce rate in families with disabled kids is higher, etc., etc., When life gets hard, unity gets hard. Love gets harder. God's giving them faith that God will meet every need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So humble love and fearlessness are the sign that is lifted up. And though it may not be on Paul's front burner, you can see this sign too. It's a sign for the adversaries, but think of it. Paul is drawing the suffering church's attention to the fact that they've got a sign that they're safe. (laughs) They give the sign, they see the sign. In giving the sign, it is either the aroma to life or death, for those who see the sign. When they see it, yes, I'm real. It's exactly the way it works in Romans 5 as well. Tribulations work patience, and patience works provenness, and provenness works hope. I'm real. I'm real. There's a sign. I'm saved. How do you know? I didn't get afraid. Or better to say it like this, I didn't let my fear stop me. I did the hard thing that I knew Christ wanted me to do to magnify the gospel. And when I was done with that, I slept so well that night. My doubts went away because I felt real. That's what signs are for. And dykeses are for that. The enemies may or may not see them. You should see them. You should see that love rising up in your heart, ready to sacrifice for a brother or sister, and you should, you should see the fear being conquered by faith, the gift of faith, and you should then say, I'm a Christian. I am. I'm a Christian. That's sweet. How then can you not rejoice in magnifying Christ? How could it not be charizomai as the right verb? I mean, if it's that precious, it's going to help me know as I give the sign and see the sign, I know I'm a Christian, of course he'd give me these gifts of suffering and faith if that's the outcome. What a precious gift. Let's take the main point again. God, I mean, I'm just say it right to you now. God, Bethlehem College and Seminary, God will graciously give you suffering and faith so that you might enjoy making much, magnifying 
him through the fearlessness of faith and the humility of love. He will. He's wonderful. He won't let you down. He will give you suffering. In small ways and large ways, you're all going to suffer as you strive together for the gospel. Now, you can minimize these by not striving for the gospel. Woe to you if that's your choice. But if you choose to strive for the advancement of the gospel at home and around the world among the rich peoples of the world, you will suffer, and the suffering will go up as the striving becomes greater. To spread the gospel and build faith. The design of this double gift that he's going to give you is your humility, your love, and your fearlessness. And written on that sign for your own soul to see and for your adversaries to see, is you are saved and they can't win. You are saved and they can't win. That's what's on the sign of your love and fearlessness. So, therefore, be good citizens of heaven and rejoice in magnifying Christ as your supreme treasure. Stand. Father, as we go now, I pray for receptive hearts, not angry or bitter or in any way resentful hearts as you give the gifts of faith and the gift of suffering to us. Rather, I pray that the faith would be so strong that when it meets the suffering, it would produce persevering love, powerful fearlessness. And that a sign would be lifted up in Minneapolis and among the peoples of the world that we are saved and that our opponents cannot win. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.